In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number four, the impeachment of President Andrew Johnson. During the last week of August 1866, President Andrew Johnson embarked on a speaking tour of the United States. A Southern War Democrat who had risen to the presidency in the wake of Lincoln's assassination, Johnson was locked in a fierce struggle with a Republican Congress. The bone of contention was Reconstruction. Johnson's speaking tour, which came to be known as the Swing Around the Circle, was intended to shore up public support. Instead, it alienated him from his few remaining allies. During his speeches, Johnson was greeted with jeers and hisses. When one heckler suggested the president should hang Jefferson Davis, Johnson shouted back that radical Republicans Thaddeus Stevens and Wendell Phillips ought to be hanged instead. The Chicago Tribune's headline about the tour read, The Ravings of a Besotten and Debauched Demagogue. The publisher of the New York Times wondered, was there ever such a madman in so high a place as Johnson? Johnson's swing around the circle was so disastrous, it convinced many of his former supporters that, to save the nation, Johnson had to go. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. Today, we're covering the rise and fall of Andrew Johnson, the 17th president of the United States, and widely considered one of the worst in the country's history. Johnson took office in the wake of Lincoln's assassination and completely failed to rise to the challenge. He made powerful political enemies, broke the law, and tarnished the office of the president. Johnson's tenure as president was so disastrous that it's hard to narrow it down to a specific political scandal. However, his attempts to derail Reconstruction are what ultimately led to his impeachment, the first in American history. Coming up, we'll explore the story of the first impeachment. It's an odd twist of fate that perhaps America's best president was succeeded by one of its worst. In the antebellum South, Andrew Johnson had grown up poor and white. Like many poor whites, he resented the rich white planter class, but also saw himself as superior to enslaved African Americans. Even though he was able to transcend his poverty and serve as mayor, member of the U.S. House of Representatives, and senator from Tennessee, this poisonous ideology would remain with him his entire life. When the Civil War broke out, Johnson, then in his early 50s, became the only senator from a Confederate state who did not resign his seat. In recognition of his loyalty, Lincoln appointed Johnson as military governor of the areas of Tennessee controlled by the Union Army. Johnson was then chosen as Lincoln's running mate for the 1864 election. Lincoln, a moderate Republican, was a committed abolitionist. Johnson, a Southern Democrat, 
had been a slave owner who only supported emancipation because it was necessary to preserve the Union. Despite their political differences, Lincoln put Johnson on the ticket as a plea for national unity. Thus, Lincoln's victory was also a crowning moment for Johnson. At the inauguration, the new vice president was called on to give the most important speech of his career so far. Which he delivered while completely drunk. After blundering his way through a slurred, rambling speech, Johnson capped off his performance by taking a Bible in hand and giving it a big, sloppy kiss. The reactions from the audience ranged from embarrassed to baffled to furious, save for Lincoln, who was said to appear sad. One can only imagine what he was thinking as his running mate, the man who was supposed to be a symbol for national unity, had disgraced himself at such a momentous occasion. Frederick Douglass was also present at the inauguration. After Johnson was introduced to the abolitionist and former slave, Douglass wrote that the vice president reacted with a look of bitter contempt and aversion, which he quickly attempted to hide with a smile. Douglas turned to a friend and said, Whatever Andrew Johnson may be, he is no friend of our race. After the vice president's drunken speech, Lincoln distanced himself from Johnson. The two didn't meet privately again until April 14th, and that same day, Lincoln was assassinated. The death of Lincoln would also prove to be the death of African Americans' dreams for a better nation. As historian Annette Gordon-Reed puts it, an assassin's bullet would place the political fate of African Americans into the hands of a man who despised them. Johnson's two defining traits were his stubbornness and his racism. Both would shape the blunders that defined his presidency and ultimately lead to his impeachment. Once while speaking to a delegation of African Americans, President Johnson said that Southern planters and their slaves had been in a conspiracy to oppress poor whites. During another not unusual rant, Johnson proclaimed, this is a country for white men, and by God, as long as I am president, it shall be a government for white men. He also openly shared his belief that the, quote, white race is superior to the black, end quote. Johnson envisioned a country where all whites would be equal in benefiting from white supremacy. As author Brenda Wineapple puts it, Andrew Johnson had sought to obstruct, overthrow, veto, or challenge every attempt of the nation to create a just republic from the ashes of slavery. Within six weeks of the assassination, Johnson was already working toward dismantling Lincoln's program for reconstruction. He was reluctant to punish Confederate politicians and generals who had committed treason by launching a civil war against the government. Johnson's priority was to restore the rebel states to the Union as quickly as possible and return all their rights and privileges. While Johnson scorned the planter class, his contempt toward African Americans ran far deeper. That hatred would be enough for Johnson to dole out forgiveness to the planters despite the fact that they had tried to destroy his beloved Union. All he demanded of the former Confederates was that they renounce their secession, abolish slavery, and swear allegiance to the federal government. With an executive proclamation, Johnson reestablished the Southern state governments, 
overriding the complaints of Congress that they should demand greater changes before letting the states back into the Union. And, as Congress feared, once the ex-Confederate state legislatures were back in power, they quickly found a way around abolition by enacting Black Codes. These laws ensured that Black Americans couldn't own property, travel freely, or be granted basic civil rights. They were re-enslaved in all but name. Johnson, on the whole, embraced this process. He even issued pardons to Confederates, letting them off the hook for treason with no more than a slap on the wrist. Not everyone was happy about this, but Johnson didn't exactly take the criticism to heart. When the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, which was responsible for providing food and shelter to freed slaves, spoke out against his policies, Johnson simply tried to shut down the Bureau. One employee of the Bureau was, coincidentally, a former slave of Johnson's. The president also tried to block passage of the 14th Amendment, which would grant citizenship to African Americans. This put him at odds with the entire Republican Party, which dominated the government at the time. The Republican Party was broadly divided into two camps. There were the radicals, who advocated for extensive rights for African Americans and harsher punishments for former Confederates. Obviously, the radicals were no fans of Johnson from the beginning. Then there were the moderates. They were less willing or even opposed to granting civil liberties to African Americans. They were open to working with Johnson, at least at the beginning. But even the moderates supported voting rights, and Johnson fully refused to play ball. Gordon Reed describes this as an act of political suicide. She writes that Johnson's refusal to cooperate with the moderates who actually wanted to work with him would eventually doom his presidency. Johnson was putting his career on the line for the sake of pure racism. He was, by his own admission, a white supremacist. The thought of giving political power to African Americans frightened and disgusted him. Even though he had been the lone Southern senator to oppose secession, he was a slaveholder at heart. Which is why, from the outset of his presidency, Johnson sought to render the sacrifice of at least half a million Americans in the Civil War meaningless. Lincoln and the Republicans had envisioned a loyalty oath which would preclude Confederate leaders from holding positions of power in the post-war government. During his time as military governor of Tennessee, Johnson had actually insisted on loyalty oaths that were harsher than Lincoln's. Yet, when he became president himself, Johnson gave amnesty to the traitors and ushered them back into the federal government as quickly as possible. During the war, the Union issued a special field order that gave land confiscated from Confederate planters to freed slaves. Once Johnson was in office, he voided the field order. The Freedmen's Bureau was forced to inform the freed slaves that they would not, in fact, be getting the land that had been promised to them. It would be returned to the traders. Without any land of their own, most African Americans were forced to keep working for their former masters. According to Gordon Reed, Johnson's decision would stunt Blacks' acquisition of property, wealth, and power for decades to come. Thanks to the newly passed Black Codes, there was another avenue where African Americans could literally be returned to slavery 
convict leasing. Under this practice, prisoners, almost inevitably black men, were put to work on state projects like road building or leased out to private business. Unlike the man he replaced in the Oval Office, Johnson did nothing to prevent the return of slavery to the United States. Instead, he actively supported its comeback. And this would prove to be only one of many scandals to eventually bring him down. Up next, we'll explore how Congress and the President waged a war over the future of the United States. Hi, listeners. To celebrate our favorite month, Parcast Network is releasing a slate of new shows leaning into all things spooky and spine-tingling. And now, we're bringing you an original series called Superstitions, featuring the origins and impacts of our most unusual beliefs and the stories of those who dare to defy them. Every week on Superstitions, hear a new drama that illustrates the eeriness and unlocks the mysteries of humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Like holding your breath while passing a cemetery so you don't wake the dead and make them jealous. Or carrying the foot of an animal known to have an evil eye. Or using iron to keep away the devil. They may seem mystical or even completely illogical, but one thing is certain, you ignore them at your own risk. You can find and follow Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. To hear more ParCast shows, search ParCast Network in Spotify's search bar and find a growing slate of spooky October programming to enjoy. Now back to the story. Andrew Johnson became president at a critical time in the country's history, a moment when strong, forward-thinking leadership was crucial if America was going to rebuild. Johnson proved himself unable or unwilling to meet the challenge. Instead, he sought to hijack Reconstruction and return the nation to its pre-Civil War power dynamics. While Johnson was putting former rebels back into power in southern states, white supremacists and ex-Confederates were unleashing horrific violence against African Americans. Simply failing to remove one's hat in the presence of a white person could lead to a black man's death. Johnson was fully aware of the torrent of racially motivated violence occurring throughout the South. He did nothing to stop it. He did nothing to protect African Americans. Rather, his policies likely emboldened the ex-Confederates as if the president was tacitly approving the violence. With non-Confederates, Johnson's inaction wasn't so well received. While the majority of white Americans in the 19th century held views which would now be considered racist, Gordon Reed asserts that a critical mass of people during Johnson's time was outraged by the level and type of violence visited upon the freedmen in southern states. Moderate Republicans may have constituted the majority of the party, but the engine, the energy, the vitality of the party at that moment lay with the radicals. They wanted to build a better nation, a more just and equitable nation. But Johnson hamstrung them at every turn. And soon, the president's action had cost him the support of Congress, support he desperately needed. Reconstruction began, more or less, with Lincoln's proclamation of amnesty and reconstruction in December 1863. 
The question that plagued the federal government after the war was, who had the authority to remake the rebel states? If the Confederate states had left the Union, that meant they were no longer officially states. They could be treated as territories. That meant Congress had authority over them, as provided by Article 4 of the Constitution. But from another viewpoint, since secession was illegal, the Confederate states had technically remained states of the federal government. And that meant that the president, as commander-in-chief, had authority over them. Johnson took this second point of view. He believed that because states couldn't legally secede in the first place, they had never technically left the Union. Therefore, he should have sole control over their course. Congress, however, disagreed. In the Capitol, Johnson's attempt to dictate the nature of Reconstruction met stiff resistance. When Congress met at the beginning of their next session, they refused to allow representatives who were former Confederates to take their seats. Effectively, the ex-Confederates were shuffled out of the Capitol and told, you can't sit with us. Then the rest of Congress got down to business, fighting for their own vision of Reconstruction, whether the president liked it or not. In 1865, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act, which would protect the civil rights of black Americans. The act was an attempt to counteract the effects of the black codes passed by Southern legislatures with Johnson's tacit approval. Naturally, the president vetoed the act. In 1866, Congress passed the act again, and Johnson vetoed it again. Congress was finally forced to override the veto in order to enact the law. To gain back the upper hand, Johnson attempted a national speaking tour called the Swing Around the Circle. His intention was to whip up support for his political positions and undermine his congressional opponents. The result was an unmitigated disaster. Johnson's behavior on the tour was undignified and combative. It wasn't how Americans expected their president to behave, especially with the image of Abraham Lincoln still fresh in their minds. Even the president's supporters were horrified by his behavior. Republican Senator James Doolittle suggested that the tour had cost Johnson one million Northern votes. By any measure, the swing around the circle did Johnson far more harm than good. And after his tour ended, he went right back to obstructing Congress. In 1867, Congress passed a bill that gave African Americans in Washington, D.C. the right to vote in municipal elections. Johnson vetoed the bill. Once again, Congress overrode the veto, and a few weeks later, African Americans voted in District of Columbia municipal elections for the first time. This was just a preview of things to come. Johnson vetoed the first Military Reconstruction Act, and the second, and the third, and the fourth. All four vetoes were overturned by Congress. And Johnson was still fighting against the 14th Amendment, which would grant citizenship to former slaves and forbid states from denying any person, life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Specifically, that was an attempt by Congress to halt the violence in the ex-Confederate states. The violence Johnson had been tacitly encouraging. The president even offered $20,000 of his own money to defeat the amendment. 
worth approximately 350,000 in today's dollars. By 1867, radical Republicans were convinced that Johnson had to go. It wasn't merely that they disagreed with his politics. Johnson was systematically abusing his power to obstruct the operations of government. His administration was throwing one tantrum after another, and it was detrimental not just to the office of the presidency, but to the nation as a whole. The radicals' first attempt to oust Johnson came in the winter of 1867. The trigger was Johnson's confrontation with General Philip Sheridan, the commander of the military district in Louisiana. After a massacre of African Americans and pro-Union whites in New Orleans, Sheridan had removed all the officials involved in the violence from office. In response, Johnson issued a stay on Sheridan's order of removal and had the Attorney General write an opinion seeking to limit Sheridan's powers. Outraged, radical Republicans attempted to remove Johnson then, but their moderate colleagues refused to back them. The moderates believed that it wasn't enough for Johnson to simply abuse his position. If they wanted to impeach him, he had to explicitly and unequivocally break the law. Then, Johnson did just that. On February 21, 1868, he fired Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, a decision seen as a violation of the Tenure of Office Act. The act had been passed the previous year in response to Johnson's attempts to remove pro-Reconstruction officials. The act forbade the president from removing any executive officer without approval from the Senate, including everyone from lower-level functionaries to cabinet members. Johnson, of course, had vetoed the act, and Congress, of course, overrode the veto. Johnson wanted to dispose of Edwin Stanton because the Secretary of War was publicly opposed to the president's policies. Stanton refused to resign from the cabinet. He figured correctly that he could do more to hinder Johnson from within. So Johnson simply fired him. Historian Eric Foner offers three reasons why Johnson fired Stanton. One, to assert his authority as head of state. Two, to endear himself to the Democratic Party in view of the upcoming 1868 election. And three, because he mistakenly believed the public was on his side. It was a fatal miscalculation. Up next, we'll explore Johnson's impeachment by the House of Representatives and how he schemed behind the scenes to avoid conviction by the Senate. Now back to the story. By early 1868, President Andrew Johnson had worn out the patience of congressional Republicans. Johnson gave them a golden opportunity to impeach him when he illegally fired Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. Moderate Republicans who had been willing, even eager to work with Johnson at the outset of his presidency, were fed up. They joined forces with the Radicals to pass an impeachment resolution in February of 1868. Nearly all Republicans in the House of Representatives voted in favor of it. For the first time in American history, a president had been impeached. Of the 11 articles of impeachment, most involved Stanton's firing. One, however, accused him of attempting to bring into disgrace, ridicule, hatred, contempt, and reproach the Congress of the United States. 
Specifically, the article referred to Johnson's swing-around-the-circle speeches, which were named as intemperate, inflammatory, and scandalous harangues. None of the articles concerned Johnson's attempts to sabotage Reconstruction or his general incompetence, despite those reasons being the impetus behind the impeachment in the first place. No president had ever been impeached before, and none of the congressmen were certain how to proceed. Moderate Republicans, whose support was crucial if impeachment was to succeed, were only interested in punishing Johnson for explicitly breaking the law. So the generally bad governing was left off the list. Once the House of Representatives brought charges against the president, it was time for a trial in the Senate, where it takes a two-thirds majority to successfully convict the head of state. Johnson selected both Democrats and Republicans to defend him at the Senate trial. His lead counsel was former Supreme Court Justice Benjamin Curtis, who had been one of the two dissenters in the Dred Scott versus Sanford decision. Meanwhile, Johnson maneuvered behind the scenes to ensure his acquittal. He met privately with select senators and promised to stop interfering with Congress's plans for reconstruction if they gave him another chance. He even made deals promising federal appointments in exchange for votes of acquittal. In the end, the backroom deal-making might have been unnecessary. Despite Johnson's many transgressions, the case against him was weak. The Tenure of Office Act was never popular, so Johnson's violation of it didn't necessarily appear grievous. Also, if Johnson was removed from office, he would be replaced by Senator Benjamin Wade, the president pro tempore of the Senate. Wade was a radical Republican who was known to hold extremist views, including the radical notion that women should be allowed to vote. The thought of him becoming president was deeply unpopular, even among Republicans. And Johnson only had a year left in his term anyway, so forcibly removing him seemed unnecessary especially if his replacement would be someone potentially more divisive. Many senators also worried about undermining the separation of powers if Congress managed to convict the president. Some feared that if impeachment became a reality, it would cause the president to be reduced to a figurehead. Or worse, that it would make a martyr out of Johnson. In May 1868, President Johnson was acquitted in the Senate. 35 senators had voted for conviction, just one vote short of the necessary two-thirds majority. Seven Republicans broke ranks to vote not guilty. Upon hearing the verdict, Johnson's bodyguard, William Crook, leapt from his seat in the Senate gallery, rushed to the White House, and announced the outcome to Johnson. The president, teary-eyed, asked for whiskey to be brought up from the cellar for a toast. Later, he told a group of well-wishers that the Constitution had triumphed. Back in the Senate, radical Republican Representative Thaddeus Stevens, one of the primary opponents of the Johnson administration, bemoaned, the country is going to the devil. Fellow radical Benjamin Butler wondered, how does it happen that just enough and no more Republican senators are convinced of the president's innocence? I think we shall be able to show where some of these men got their consciences and how much they are worth. It was generally assumed that at least some of the seven Republicans who had voted not guilty had been bribed in some manner. 
The House subsequently voted to create a committee to investigate corruption during the impeachment trial. Pressed by the committee, the senators under investigation either evaded the inquiries or feigned ignorance. Witnesses said they had heard talk of purchasing votes, but couldn't recall what exactly had been said. The committee ultimately found circumstantial evidence of bribery, but no hard evidence. After the trial, Johnson granted special favors to the Republicans who had voted not guilty. For instance, Edmund Ross from Kansas petitioned Johnson to appoint several of his friends to various government posts, all of which Johnson agreed to. At the Republican National Convention, held just days after the initial vote for impeachment, Ulysses S. Grant secured the nomination. Wineapple notes that the Republican platform was broad and bland, containing the usual promises to reduce taxes and eliminate corruption. Abolitionist Wendell Phillips suggested that if Johnson had been convicted, maybe the Republican platform would have pledged itself to something rather than to empty nothings. Johnson boasted that he could easily defeat Grant in the November elections, but the Democratic Party wanted nothing to do with him. The president had become persona non grata. As Johnson's tenure limped to an ignominious end, one newspaper remarked, No president has had grander opportunities than Andrew Johnson. No one has failed so lamentably. He defied the people he said he loved and succeeded in destroying only himself. During his farewell address, Johnson remarked that he had nothing to regret. On the surface, it appears that since Johnson was acquitted, the attempt at his impeachment had failed. However, author Brenda Wineapple argues that while Johnson escaped conviction, the impeachment, quote, demonstrated that the American president was not a king, that all actions have consequences, and that the national government conceived in hope with its checks and balances could maintain itself without waging war, end quote. For Johnson, the consequence of his actions was the end of his support and ultimately the end of his political career. For America, the consequences were much worse. The legacy of Johnson's failed reconstruction would continue long after he left office, shaping American society for the rest of time. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with number three on our countdown, the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Among the many sources we used in researching this episode, we found the books Andrew Johnson by Annette Gordon-Reed and The Impeachers, The Trial of Andrew Johnson and the Dream of a Just Nation by Brenda Wineapple particularly helpful. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream political scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. 
This episode of Political Scandals was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hang a horseshoe above your door, keep a rabbit's foot in your pocket, and follow Superstitions free on Spotify. Listen every Wednesday for the surprising backstories to our most curious beliefs and thrilling tales that illuminate the mystical eeriness of our favorite superstitions.